0: Yo. Hi. What up? It's
1: Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Damon. I am Kiss. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. How are you, my friend, Damon? I'm well, man. My body and mind are are functioning, so there we go. You all right? I'm doing okay. All right. I would say my body and mind are also functioning. Well, then we're here. Things are good. Nah. Uh, A couple community announcements before we get to our conversation. On Thursday, May 16th, today, the day this episode comes out, is the first Ergo Live in the city of Chicago we have a great live show for you at the Cards Against Humanity Theater that's 1917 North Elston we are in conversation with Green Slime and Jasmine Barber aka J. Bambi it's going to be a whole lot of fun we got some fun little segments in the works at its special guest not just a guest no no special surprise special Special surprise guest 7.30 tonight the 16th at the Cards Against Humanity Theater and then on hurry up yeah, get here yeah come on make the move if you're listening to this in traffic when the episode drops, let's go hit the hit the u-turn and we'll see you here and then on Sunday we are at the apple store big moves global capitalism moves <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving a workshop on interviewing podcasting with our friend Cher Vincent from Post Loudness. She'll be giving a talk and then we're doing a hands-on workshop. Would it be too much for me to bust down my black turtleneck? Is that too on the nose <laughs> for a talk at apple? It depends how many other people had that exact same thought for all the talks before this. <laughs> I think we should go like different color turtlenecks. Like, I'll go like uh, like violet.
0: Okay, I got a striped turtleneck. Perfect. All right, I'm ready.
1: The neck should be covered okay. in homage. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to see what color turtleneck David wears come through, you'll be done in time for Game of Thrones, and it should be a whole lot of fun. Those were community announcements, but they were just our shit. Community. Yeah, we're part of the community. Absolutely. Also, shout out to the community.
0: Very dedicated listener, Jelena. She's a big part of why we reached out to today's guest, Andy Clarno. She's a student at UIC, at Taco Donut Queen. Shout out to a very dedicated fan and friend.
1: Thanks for doing the work of getting us in conversation with a brilliant professor and social movement builder, who was really gracious to take the time to talk with us. Professor Andy Clarno is a professor at UIC. His book, Neoliberal Apartheid, is available now, exploring the connections between South Africa and Israel-Palestine. He's been doing a lot of work around erasing the gang database here in Chicago. So without further ado, do you have any further ado? No more ado. Let's get it. All right, let's get into it with Professor Andy Clarno.
0: We're becoming like smart sounding people. This is one of those ones that's gonna make us sound smart. I hope so. Or reveal how
1: <laughs> reveal how far away we are from being this far. is why so many times people don't try to sound smart is because if you fail, yeah, pooh. No one wants to sound dumb next to a smart person. But I'm just glad to be here mm-hmm. with our wonderful Guest in the building today, Andy Kornow here. Author, mm-hmm. professor, researcher, Andy, what's up? Thanks up, for up, having up, me,
0: y'all. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Thanks for coming. So we, we always like to start with a two-part question. Mm. In this time, in defined time, however you want, this day, this hour, this season, year, lifetime, how is the world treating you mm. and how are you treating the world?
2: Well, I have to say the world's treating me better than it should. Mm. Uh, I got very little to complain about right now. But I'm trying to fight back against the world the way <laughs> yeah. it is, so yeah. yeah, why is it better than it should you know i feel I feel privileged in my in my personal life mm-hmm. my the the work that I'm doing here in the community here in Chicago with folks I feel extremely lucky to have had the chance to build the relationships that I have uh, with folks at u i c with with folks more broadly in the community the organizers that we've been working with um, and certainly. Feel like you know we try to push back, push yeah. back against all the structures of inequality and, and pain and oppression in the world, and uh, and yet here I am, you know, <laughs> living this life. So
1: yeah, that's a uh, that's a real pickle. <laughs> so uh, let, let, let's kind of get into that. And you alluded to some of the relationships that you that you've built here in this season. Where are the really fruitful relationships and yeah, what are you excited yeah, about yeah. in your work right now? Because we'll, we'll do the full scope, but let's stay for in the sure. moment.
2: Yeah, right now I have to say, it's, it's the work we've been doing with the Erase the Database campaign. We've had just a, a string of you know successes that the, that campaign has had in the last several months. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I've been thrilled to be a part of that and looking forward to next steps that are coming up.
1: Um, what kind of success? I mean, for those who don't know. For sure,
2: yeah. The Erased Database campaign is a coalition of community organizations, social movements here in Chicago. Uh, started about two years back, uh, conversations between BYP 100, Organized Communities Against Deportation, Mi Gente, uh, and a few others, and it's really expanded since that time. The initial focus was on the Chicago Police Department's gang databases, massive database uh, with absolutely no controls over how people get into it. Over what happens to that data once you're on the database,
1: it was almost like a quarter of the city's population was in there. So, I'm like that's an exaggeration. Yeah, Lovely it's an
2: exaggeration, but it's somewhere between 130, 200,000 people. people. So that's like an eighth to a tenth. There you go. Yeah, and so that's you,
1: still but crazy you, enough. But yeah. If yeah. you, but you but,
0: concentrate but, it to the areas of the city that are yeah. police, right, that's then right. it starts to get. If yeah, you, you concentrate to that,
2: it down yeah. to particular neighborhoods, if you concentrate it down to you know black and brown men of a certain age, yeah. it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, proportions. Yeah.
0: and so. You know, this is such an interesting political push because I think it, it is so important. And once you learn about it, it becomes obvious after, you know, a, a few rounds of information. But I think, like, for just the layman person who is not an abolitionist yet, right? Like, the idea of, like, we need to right. be patrolling right. gangs. This is the threat to, you know, our our security. For sure. um, I, I think this is a, a, a valuable learning lesson because it's, it's not... Two plus two equals four, right? It's a little bit of multiplication, I would say, but on like a pop culture level, like the the Nipsey Hustle mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. and like his friend who was around him who got reincarcerated right. because right. of this type of surveillance. Yeah, just just kind of give the the context of yeah, why it is so sure. consequential.
2: I mean, on the on the immediate level, the gang database is the tool of surveillance, right? And so. The way that people end up on the gang database is simply a reflection of who's being policed and what neighborhoods are being heavily policed. You can end up on a gang database for being arrested mm-hmm. for something that, that, the, that the police consider to be you know, gang-related activity. But they also have databases, a huge database of people who haven't been arrested, who've just been stopped and searched. So stop and frisk becomes a tool of adding names into this surveillance database right. that then becomes an excuse for continuing to target the same neighborhoods and the same people with even more police, right. right? And once you're on the database, it has real impacts on people's lives. It has impacts on the encounter that you would have with the police, right? So if, <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you're stopped for a traffic stop and they go back, run your name, see that you're listed on this database as a gang member, the possibility for a violent encounter really right. just is, is immediately enhanced.
1: And yeah. they don't see necessarily all of the context of what happened. They just see your name gets flagged. That's it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, so
1: it's like, oh, this is a perceived threat without any context or any information.
2: In addition to that, though, right, if you, if you get arrested, if you end up in front of a jury or a judge, as soon as that word gang member gets thrown out there, yeah. right, it, it changes yeah. the dynamic yeah. and the way that the judge and the jury look at people. And there's been research that's shown just how— how much of an impact that has on sentencing hearings. Beyond that, CPD has a policy of not accepting bonds on your own recognizance that don't mm. require money mm. for people who are hmm. listed on a gang database. The other piece of it is that even though Chicago is supposedly a sanctuary city, right? Some heavy air quotes. <laughs> supposedly a sanctuary city. But the, the sanctuary policy has all of these exceptions written into it, right? Where the, the protections for immigrants don't apply to certain categories of people. People who, are, who have a felony conviction, people who have a warrant out for their arrest, and people who are on a gang database. Right. This massive Chicago Police Department gang database, ICE has access to it. Immigration authorities have searched the, the CPD's gang database 32,000 times in the last 10 years. No. That just came out in a new report. Hmm they use that information to to go after to target people and to carry out raids right?
1: and then i would imagine you know even just in public consciousness then to justify those raids right exactly. because as like you said as soon as you throw that word gang member all of a sudden there's this discomfort and that's this right. uproar that's of right. like oh then you know this is the right action especially at the intersection of undocumented gang member right, right? Yeah. that's a whole different level and the, i mean and that's the fear. the the trope that's been played you know the ms13 trope repeatedly yeah, is, is right. it's not just they they kind of stopped the like they're taking all our jobs argument mm-hmm. and went with the like they are innately dangerous to us yeah. argument. Um, can I ask one audio For favor? Sure. Do you mind removing your jacket? Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> I've never had someone to take their clothes off <laughs> in the studio before, but I just know the rubbing of it is Rub- showing up yeah, on the mic. Of course. <laughs> It's a cool jacket, though. It is a nice jacket. Dad, I appreciate that. It's not that kind of show, usually. Really. It's not Howard Stern. But uh, thanks for complying with we'll consenting to that.
0: We, we said the word intersection, so that's like mm-hmm. strip poker bingo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listeners at home, in your car, drink.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so where do you find like the the... Frustration, right? Because with every social issue, with every, like, yeah, yeah. expression of yeah, oppression, yeah. right? There's always the, like, but you just don't get this. And, and what, what is the trope or the little prickle like, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, you're, mm-hmm. that you're seeing from people who respond to this without maybe an understanding of why it is so impactful and significant?
2: I mean, you know, people have real concerns about violence in their neighborhoods. Right. Right? right. That discourse about violence and gangs is so pervasive. And it comes from politicians. It comes from the media. It's a lot to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but what i've been just extraordinarily impressed with is the way in which the the organizers that we've been working with the people who are you know at the forefront of this campaign to erase the gang database have been so effective yeah at carrying through the the, the points that you know more police more surveillance more databases isn't gonna create community safety mm-hmm. right what we need to do is think about how to reinvest in communities mm-hmm. reinvest in communities take that money you know away from just more police more databases more high-tech surveillance equipment and and find ways to to really reinvest in the community so
1: yeah i'm thinking about the sort of the yeah. idea of surveillance and a, the balance of uh discomfort and inevitability mm-hmm. and kind of the macro scale that i think people all over the world and here feel and and you know kind of in the same way that people talk about gentrification as it's just like this natural force that right, nothing can be right, done right, about. Right. You know, they're like, well, things, you're just going to be surveilled and that's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And, you know, we're kind of in that pivot point right now. Pivot. Where, <laughs> um, of there being maybe some, some spaces of interjection there to try to, you know, dismantle. But does it feel like a like, kind of like a Luddite thing <laughs> to you? Does it feel inevitable? I don't think it does. And I think that, you
2: know, coming coming back to the point we were starting with, we're on the victories that have been happening. (laughs) Um, It doesn't feel inevitable. It feels like there's been some real possibilities for pushback. When the campaign started, it was focused primarily on the Chicago Police Department. But last summer, there started to be more attention being raised to the fact that Cook County Sheriff's Office maintained its own gang database. (laughs) Commissioner Chuy Garcia started asking questions this team started looking into it. They asked for the office of the independent inspector general at the county level to do an audit of the county's gang database. It's called Rigid, the regional gang intelligence database.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they are like, gonna they come out. up with a corny <laughs> acronym, man. They, oh, they're man. so whack. Like they it's like a guy. like, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rigid.
1: <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. We're st- <laughs> so, I think I heard they were gonna call it "stick up your ass." <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> So they, um,
2: you know, the campaign was started mm-hmm. having conversations with people in, in Chewie's office. And when he moved on to Congress, Commissioner Alma Anaya moved into to that, mm-hmm. that position that had been his before. And she continued to push questions about the, the gang database. And it's amazing how quickly things move. As soon mm-hmm. as she started calling for public attention, investigations into this gang database, public hearings into it, the sheriff, Tom Dart started getting a little bit worried yeah. and started sending out emails trying to find another this is like a regional database so there's a lot of different counties in illinois and indiana that are part of this network mm-hmm. that, that have access to the database so they started trying to find some other agency that would take it on
1: <laughs> uh,
2: to get to get out from underneath this this attention but nobody would take it on and so in january he was just like that's it we're taking it offline we're ending the database. It's decommissioned.
1: That's yeah. unusual. Yeah. You know, does it make you skeptical? <laughs> it makes me time. skeptical. It made
2: everybody skeptical. So folks were like, hold on. Abolishing the database is the ultimate goal. But, you know, let, let, let's take a step back and do this in a way that's accountable and responsible. Right. Mm-hmm. What happened to these public hearings? What happened to the investigation? You know, if you're just going to up and destroy the database now, are you going to then come back and say, those questions yeah. that y'all have, we can't answer them because mm-hmm. the data's gone. The mm-hmm. database the is gone paper got
1: shredded. Don't know what to tell you. Or yeah. you can retire and your successor can come and reopen. Yeah, it. like,
2: yeah, exactly. So the campaign continued to mobilize. The commissioners ended up in February passing an ordinance saying that precisely on that point of, you know, can this thing be reintroduced, that this is offline and it's permanently eliminated wow. and that there will have to be public hearings into the database and that's scheduled for next week there's going to mm-hmm. be public hearings into the Cook County database and after that happens then there's going to be an ultimate destruction of this database so- and
1: it feels so like science fiction-y like the like, burning of the server. And that's exactly what it is about.
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. that's the thing that kind of blew my mind is that they, when they took this thing offline, it's now sitting on two hard drives in a vault somewhere. And the idea yeah. is that ultimately, they're going to smash it with a hammer. Like office space, Light it on yeah. fire, right? Like that's how you destroy a database.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, What Man. a weird... Yeah, definitely. Shout out to all the organizations a part of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we we obviously have a lot of love for BYP one hundred up here. They get talked about a lot, but Ooh. Ocad specifically yeah. um, has been doing some important work, and, and just watching them communicate. Ray is who I mm-hmm. who I see the That's most right. most publicly. It's really like the the level of detail. And like consistency also mixed mm-hmm. with the big picture messaging of of abolition and of yeah. getting away from surveillance it's It's really impressive work. I have two thoughts, but i want to I want to yeah, yeah. stay there um so for you and your position as right. a as a university professor in the classroom, right. also a researcher and academic, it feels like the, this relationship of having your students engage in a research project mm-hmm. in partnership with these very radical grassroots organizations is kind of like a new or somewhat precarious position. Is it is it stretching you, as or, or does it make you feel like fuller in? Oh, that was leading. I shouldn't give you the yeah. answer. How That's does it the feel? The
2: answer, That's the answer right there. You know, um, <laughs> we're learning <laughs> <Yes>. always. <laughs> yeah, it's been amazing. As I was finishing up my first book, which is on Palestine and South Africa, I you know was was also going through the process of getting tenure and mm-hmm. having that stability of a, being a tenured professor. The question is like, now what are you going to do with that?
0: Yeah, right? like talk
2: your shit. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about like what comes next and what do I want my life to look like? You know, three things became clear over time is that, you know, I wanted to build deeper relationships with movements here in Chicago. I wanted to move away from this kind of individualist model of doing research, you know, just on your own to having a collective You know, I'm being part of a group working together and I wanted to do projects that were quicker. Right. Mm -hmm. That book that I wrote took me a very, very long time, you know, and I wanted to be able to produce knowledge in a way that's at a much more rapid pace and more in line with the timing of campaigns and Mm -hmm. political mobilizations. And so that was the vision that, that came together in this project. And it's been Really incredible. You know, UIC is a, a great place to be. I'm, I'm grateful to be at the university surrounded by supportive, radical faculty, uh, incredible grad students and undergrads that have had my back from yeah. the start. You know, it hasn't felt precarious, even though, yeah,
1: it's, it's out there, right? Yeah. To the point about the, the velocity and the speed mm-hmm. with which you mm-hmm. want to be creative. Yeah, right. That was in response to feeling like you wanted it to be adaptive and useful for people who were doing grassroots or, or exactly. what was the incentive there? Yeah,
2: that's right. I've always felt that the most important ideas, the most important knowledge comes out of struggle, mm-hmm. comes out of that that those you know engagements, those deep engagements in struggle. And I feel like that was the case with, with my previous work. Yeah. Um, but it, it just took such a long time to materialize that thinking about how to make it useful, it had to be on a kind of a long-term level, yeah. right? In terms of thinking about... What are the next 10, 20 years looking like, right? Not like what's the next month looking like. Right. And so it's a different kind of strategic thinking in terms of what kind of knowledge am I producing and how is it gonna be useful for movements and movement building. But I really find myself most inspired when when I'm in that moment. Yeah. You know? This was a way to try to create that. Yeah. And so the idea is that we will be a, a research collective that is gonna work in dialogue with social movements in Chicago, studying the state, studying power, and producing research in service to social movements.
1: That's beautiful. What were some methods that you had familiarity or comfort with before from the previous work? Right. That now don't really apply in this mm. in this fast paced mm-hmm. work.
2: Yeah, I don't know that there's that there's stuff that that just doesn't apply, but uh, you know it works differently. Mm-hmm. When we started this project, I was teaching a, a two semester. Research Practicum for incoming graduate students we, in the spring term they they take a class where they're introduced to research methods and learn how to develop a project over the summer. the idea is you carry out that research and in the fall take another class where you learn how to analyze data and write up those results mm. that became the the foundation for this this project is mm-hmm. that in the spring we were all together working on i was introducing them to various different research methods we were learning how to do research over the summer the idea was that they start carrying out research and be able to write stuff up and so i set out teaching them ethnography how to you know be in a situation observing what's going on around you taking field notes talking to people having those informal conversations we we also focused on you know conducting interviews how do you develop a Qualitative interview guide where you can sit down and have those, you know, conversations and learn a lot about people through those conversations. You know, initially that was kind of what I envisioned being the, the core of this project. Yeah. But what's been really amazing is the ways in which the project itself has forced us to shift and to hmm. think about different ways of doing research. So for instance, one of my students, Michael Muniz, organized a, a workshop on writing FOIA requests, mm. which I had never done before. Uh, How's your FOIA game now? <laughs> it, <laughs> it's on, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of FOIAs, and we've gotten some stuff back. Yeah. Uh, and because we're so close with community organizations, they've been able to put us in touch with movement lawyers who are able to, like, push them through the legal process hmm. if they need to go that way, you know? yeah.
0: Real uh, quick on FOIA. Am, am yeah. I idealistic or the fact that that even exists is ridiculous, right? Like, the Freedom of Information Act, the, the, right. for folks who don't know, it's basically about, like, state and government information That's that right. is concealed from the people, and you have to go through this, like, it's like often rigorous... Paper it's like, heavy it's process. Like this is
1: in the public, but it's private.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is I there mean, any that, justification for the fact the, that we have to go through that? I
2: think the the idea that it exists at all is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, the fact that you can request this information mm-hmm. from a public entity and they're supposed to provide it mm-hmm. because it's public, mm-hmm. right? right? Like that's the whole basis of it. That's pretty amazing. So um, we're kind
1: of coming from two different sides. With yeah. the it's, assumption it's, that it's, everything is is closed door. And the like, everything should be open, open.
2: right? And it should be right. And so, when we first worked with folks on who presented this workshop to us, they were like, "No, no, no, you write these requests, and it's extraordinarily simple. You basically have to just write an email saying, you know, under the guidelines of the FOIA Act, I would like this, 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 and this records, and they're supposed to send it to you. And that's what they told us was going to happen. And I was skeptical, (laughs) you know, I was like, "No, no, no, it's not going to work like that, right? And it hasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously <laughs> A
1: narrator um, voice yeah, it didn't
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know that there's all kind of excuses and justifications they can give for not giving you what you asked for they yeah. give you partial records and little pieces of this or that or delay take their time getting back to you yeah. it doesn't work the way it's supposed to right but we have been able to get some stuff and so have others. This group like the Lucy Parsons Lab, which mm-hmm. is constantly writing FOIA requests to the Chicago Police Department and putting that information up online so that you know, that information is out there. ProPublica has gotten some really amazing yeah. information uh, through FOIA requests. Invisible the Tribune, Institute. The Invisible which dealt, Institute right? yeah. as well, right? So that became a, an approach that we didn't even, hadn't even thought about. Yeah. And it's become really an important part of, of our work. Another piece of it is that none of us were quantitative, statistical, Researchers, right? Yeah. We're all people who like talking to folks and being in the situation. Um, but as it became clear that these projects were really about like big data and the way in which big data is transforming policing, we were able to get access to some very big databases yeah. uh, from the city, from the county, and we needed some help analyzing yeah. that. Right, so I had to reach out to students. Uh, one of my students, Sage Kim, who you know is a mathematical wizard. And yeah. has been shout able out to sit sage.
1: down. Sage, shout out to Sage. sage. You know, She's been able to sit down and, and, and the first it. wizard shout <laughs> out. <laughs> she she can break down
2: those numbers. Right. Um, and then just the ways in which the movements themselves are constantly doing research. Right? right, it is something we knew from the start, and we we wanted to just kind of build on and contribute to the work that they're doing and gathering knowledge at, in their mobilizations. And so we've you know been really introduced to new new ways of doing research that they have. So for instance. Mm-hmm. When we we first wrote our first report on the gang database, there was a series of recommendations at the end that the campaign put together and wrote up. And and we we added that on the last page of our our report. And one of the calls that they had was for the city's Office of the Inspector General to do an investigation into the Chicago Police Department's gang database. We did a a teach-in that was organized by BWIP 100 and Critical Resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, And some folks from the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General, were there. and saw the report. And took it on themselves to carry out an investigation into the CPD gang database. They were
1: taught it. a teach-in, they, they were taught in. They,
2: <laughs> they were taught in. They brought it up. And, and just two weeks ago, at the beginning of April, released a report after a full year of, of research into the police department's gang database. They mm-hmm. released this massive public report. Hmm. Uh, which, you know, is a whole different, a whole other way of doing research, right? Yeah. Uh, to bring in. Oh, a, a city yeah, office is yeah. made for that right. uh, and the other thing that they've been constantly pushing is public hearings you know public hearings mm. to get the, the police department or the sheriff's office in front of people who can ask questions and have them answer or so, not
1: or not but at least but, then but, you have that's an answer in and of itself but
2: that becomes a you know another methodology right, right? Yeah. so um, point of mobilization so what right? yeah so this this project has opened up all kinds of new mm. thinking about methods and research yeah. and how it works so.
1: So I'm curious in uh you know this relationship between mm-hmm. organizing and scholarship and research. Right. You're someone who has, you know, done a lot of work understanding social movement building and resistance in two separate contexts outside of the United States in South Africa and in Israel-Palestine and I'm curious whether there are examples of relationships between mm-hmm. scholarship and movement building in either of those that you're looking to as if not examples at least places to pull Ideas and, exam- and uh, practice from.
2: Yeah, in both places, especially in South Africa. South mm-hmm. Africa has a rich tradition of, you know, movement-engaged academics. Going back to the long struggle against apartheid, there were a lot of people who found space within academia to be able to support Hmm. movements and uh, the, the liberation struggle there.
1: Within the country or? In Some within places? the country and, yeah. and,
2: and more outside. You know, the political organizations in South Africa also created research institutes and in support hmm. for that. The, the Palestine Liberation Organization also has a very big and impressive research wing. And So in both places, like, the, the, the ties between research and, and movement building go back. Mm-hmm. Um, in South Africa, particularly you, you still see that very, very strongly today. There's a lot of, uh, really deep ties between, you know, radical academics situated at South African universities yeah. and, and social movements in the townships and in the cities. And, 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 you know, some of that had really fed into the, the student protest a few years back, um. There were massive student protests in South Africa. Started off in in Cape Town at the University of Cape Town, calling for the decolonization of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, calling for the an elimination of statues of people like Cecil Rhodes. Um, and then it, and then expanded top, top five
0: fuckboys. Yeah, yeah. can, can everybody might not be up on their Cecil Rhodes game. Can you give like
1: a, yes a few sentences? Oh not God. much, but I like, feel like we're just like putting quarters in a jukebox. <laughs> <laughs>
2: this is great. Cecil Rhodes was uh, one of the biggest British uh, imperialists. Um, they controlled most of the gold mines. The De Beers family comes out of Cecil Rhodes, um, and you know they expanded north into Zimbabwe and Zambia. Uh, Rhodesia, mm-hmm. without the whole concept of the, what Zambia and Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia, named and after if Cecil you got Rhodes. A,
1: a country on another continent named after you, you're not a great guy. Yeah. That's like what happen big... with love.
2: <laughs> and, and his family money, you know, founded the University of Cape Town. And mm-hmm. so there's a huge statue of Cecil Rhodes there. Mm-hmm. So the, the protest started with uh, students dumping buckets of excrement on top of this statue. And be- saying, because
0: Rhodes must fall. Right. Because the estimated death toll of Mm. his work and his colonial imperialism is i I don't want to exaggerate it's unknowable right but it's in the the millions
2: i don't i don't don't know the numbers on that but i
0: trust you yeah (laughs) Yeah. he is the face of one of the greater genocides they go unaccounted for is is my understanding
1: and then on the like contemporary i try not to do a lot of like reading about like well Mm. let's see what are white supremacists up to these Mm. days (laughs) but you do tend to see them like look at rhodesia as an example of a Genocidal apartheid state that they are trying to create yeah, that's uh, wherever right. they are. So Dylan Roof had a Rhodesia flag when he uh, went into the church, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like selling of Rhodesia merch. as a song, which is it, yeah. just like that's your merch game. Like <sighs> just from a merchandising standpoint, <laughs> shout out, get your ergo tees <laughs> or bubble down. <laughs> so l- let's go back to those relationships. There yeah, are, right. is there like a like a lineage in terms of particular people or within those institutions that you see as like, man, you know, that's my, like, my goat <laughs> mm-hmm. of people that you, you're trying to be in lineage with?
2: Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't list any single individual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm inspired by so many people in South Africa currently doing work there yeah, yeah. And, and with a long history. Um, folks that, that supported me while I was there, you know, doing research for, for that first
0: book. So yeah. shout out to all the comrades in South Africa. We're, we want to do two things, right? We yeah. want to, we're very curious of like, your path and your trajectory yeah, sure. that got you into this work. Mm. But then also the work is so dense right. and rich itself yeah. that we want to kind of do a balance sure. of like unpacking you, but sure, also sure. unpacking some of the lessons of I met you around 2016. Barbara Ramsby was mm-hmm. putting together a couple conferences. And then as R3 came around, I think there, right. there was an event there. And then you also just shout out to you. Have me come talk to your class, which I'm a big amazing. fan of.
1: If you want, Damon, if you want Damon to be your friend, <laughs> just ask, like ask me to come to talk somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that was that, I appreciated that also. Just like so did the students. Yeah. By the way, oh, they thank you, it. thank yeah, you, be able to talk about like movement work and police abolition on a local level. But you know, my entry to you mm-hmm. is, is this triangle of you know the U.S. imperialism in connection to what's happening mm-hmm. in South right, Africa and right. Israel Palestine, which is really complicated. Most people are ignorant or uninformed or don't care. Right. right, but it it is it is so significant, I think that the overlaps or the intersections drink <laughs> of those three spaces <laughs> is really important, so i'm I'm trying to get into a crisp question about it, but yeah. uh, and I'm struggling to do so, but go but ahead I can you help go you. ahead
1: what is a connection overlap mm-hmm. intersection piece of this story that you have mapped in these connect- this triangle that you have helped illuminate that right. you think people miss most or you feel like right. is most important for people to understand?
2: When we talk about Palestine, when activists talk about Palestine, when, when when anybody does, it's 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 too complicated. It's too hard to understand. It's different than anything else happening in the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's exceptional, and in some ways, it is exceptional because of the intense colonial project that Israel is is currently carrying on, displacing people from their homes and and you know driving to it expand its control over over the West Bank uh, in particular, but also throughout the territory the inside the boundaries of, of 1948, boundaries mm-hmm. of Israel. But yet at the same time, it's very much part of the processes that are changing social relations around the world today, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of the things that I try to draw out
1: <laughs> and, and
2: want to like emphasize is that, you know, what we're seeing in South Africa, and this is kind of like the paradox that the book tries to set out to answer, right? Is that South Africa and Palestine and Israel went through very different political changes in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. right? South Africa went through this democratization, apartheid was officially over, black people got the right to vote, the right to move around, the right to not have passes, to live whenever they want, to go to whatever schools they want,
1: freedom. Some more air Drop quotes. In now. a war, <laughs> air quotes. We desperately needed air quote sound fact. Yeah. <laughs> right there. That's just a production note for me, Daniel. Put it in air notes. And in
2: Palestine, it's been extremely different, right? The, the whole peace process that started at that same time, in the early 1990s, has not brought any freedom or equality for Palestinians, right? They're still living under the settler colonial rule. Politically, there's been the creation of the Palestinian Authority, which has very limited powers of autonomy within certain spaces inside the West Bank, you know, power over the curriculum in the schools and over the healthcare policy and welfare yeah. policy, but no real sovereignty. And Israel, you know, controls the whole region, right? So politically, they've gone in very different directions. Yeah, But yet, economically and socially, the changes that have taken place in South Africa and Palestine Israel over the last 20 years are, are kind of shockingly similar. Hmm. You see deepening inequality, right? Extreme inequality between rich and poor. South Africa now is considered the most unequal country in the world, hmm. despite the end of apartheid, right? You see concentrations of racialized poverty. You yeah. know, Palestinians concentrated into the cities of the West Bank and into the Gaza Strip. Poor black South Africans living in, in massive informal settlements and the former townships that have only partially gone through any kind of transformation in the last 20 years. So you've got growing inequality, there's racialized poverty, and then the creation of these advanced strategies for protecting the powerful and policing the racialized poor in both places. In South Africa, it's all about private security. Private security has been the the fastest growing industry in the country Mm -hmm. for the last 20 years. And in the wealthy neighborhoods, they've come up with strategies and tactics to Govern and control and regulate the movement of poor black people through those neighborhoods. Right? Hmm. Some neighborhoods put up gates around the neighborhoods and, and, you know, control who can go in and out. Others that don't have gates have these kind of really aggressive private security companies that roll up on on young black people, stop them, search them, ask them what they're doing there, quote unquote, escort them out of the neighborhood. <laughs> if they can't prove that they've got business there, right? In Palestine, it's obviously all driven by the military. It's it's driven by the Israeli military, the U.S. military, working together with Jordan and Egypt and the Palestinian Authority. Like the main thing that the Palestinian Authority actually does is maintain these massive security forces, 80,000 people strong. And their job is not to protect Palestinians, but to ensure the security of the Israelis. So they work hand in hand. They're trained by the U.S., in Jordan, using the same facilities and the same private contractors that trained the Iraqi army after the U.S. invasion in 2003. And then they come back into the West Bank, and they're deployed in the cities of the West Bank, and they work in coordination with the Israeli military to suppress any forms of resistance on the part of Palestinians. From the Palestinian Authority's point of view, like the only way that they'll ever convince the Israelis to allow them to have a state of their own is by proving that they can yeah. ensure the security That's, of Israel, right? right? But what it turns out is that you know you've got terrible conditions where people are are constantly oppressed, having their land stolen, you know, being killed. And whenever they rise up to resist, the first people that they come up against are other Palestinians working for these security agencies, right? So there's the development of these very advanced forms of securitization to control and police these racialized poor while protecting the elites. You see that in South Africa, it looks different. You see it in Palestine, it looks a little different. But you also see it in Chicago, yeah. and you see it along the U.S.-Mexico border, it and just, you see it in so it many parts of the like world. It's like
1: neoliberalism right? to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so that's why yeah. the book is called Neoliberal Apartheid, yeah. mm-hmm. because it's saying that we need to pay attention to neoliberalism. We, we need to see the ways in which neoliberalism has put limitations on the process of decolonization in South Africa. It's had real limitations on, on the change that's actually taken place, the social and economic change, and it's also impacting the way in which Israel's settler colonial project plays out now. Palestinian workers have become surplus; They're not needed anymore. Right. They're seen as disposable. So they can be isolated in the Gaza Strip. Mm. You know, they can be isolated in these areas in the West Bank and surrounded by walls and checkpoints and left to die, right? Yeah. The only jobs that remain for Palestinians today is either construction work, building Israeli settlements, settlements on lands that's been stolen from other Palestinians, or working in these security forces, right. repressing resistance to the occupation, mm. right? Yeah. And, and, that, and that feels familiar. And so the point is that what's happening in Palestine is happening in South Africa. It's happening here. Mm-hmm. It's ha- right? So this, this neoliberal apartheid regimes that we're seeing, where we have this extreme inequality, racialized poverty, and advanced forms of, of militarized policing, this is definitive of our time. So this is ultimately yeah. getting back to the question you asked. like, What is it that brings Chicago, Palestine, and South mm-hmm. Africa into the same frame, in my work, yeah. is, is that
1: right there. That's a beautifully mapped and I think really helpful to understand the like two different directions from a pivot point <laughs> leading to you know so many shared results. You, you mentioned that, and, and this goes to a conversation David and I were actually having before you got here. You mentioned that in Palestinian liberation work, often there is this understanding of that situation as exceptional, and in many ways, it is exceptional. But I'm curious for you, why do you think it is framed as such so often? Mm. I think part of it has
2: to do with the fact that so many liberation movements that that the PLO was in conversation with in the 60s and the 70s, those countries became independent. The transition that took place in South Africa or in Zimbabwe or Mozambique or, you know, across so much of the African continent, whether it was in Vietnam, like those struggles ended. And this one is, you know, still continuing in the same, Hmm. you know, frame of of an anti-colonial struggle. Part of it is that feeling like it's out of time, <laughs> you know? Another part of it, for sure, is the deep connection of Israel into the U.S. empire. The fundamental role that Israel plays within kind of U.S. strategy and policy around the Middle East. Um, that notion of Israel as the U.S.'s closest ally, yeah. right? A special friendship and all of
1: yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, is an important question that I've been trying to figure mm-hmm. out, too.
0: So... What do you see in terms of relationship of the resistance, right? Because we yeah. know that the militarism or the policing, right, right. whether it is corporate, municipal, or at the nation-state level, it's the same formation, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, for, for me, the, the wake-up was, you know, I had a, a socioeconomic understanding of race and racism. It was very U.S.-centric going into 2014. Uh-huh. You know, I, I heard Free Palestine. I started to understand it as, like, an apartheid state. Probably so, about a year. But then there was still like, you know, those campus debates of you gotta hear both sides. And I you know, I I wasn't right. dedicated enough to really like understand the nuances right. of of the atrocities. And there wasn't
1: even that much debate, to be honest, on campus. What was her name? She
0: was she was getting into that bag. Uh, oh,
1: yeah. Shout out to... We don't need to shout out. Shout out to her. <laughs> Sorry. That's the best we can do today. Um, <laughs> Once we have a crack research team sitting at our side. No, if wow.
0: I took 30 seconds, I can remember her name. I'm well, not... We're going to hold that. Shout out to her. <laughs> but it wasn't until becoming active and understanding global geopolitics, through the Ferguson moment of all oh, these tear gas canisters are coming from Israel, right? And then a year later, as we're learning about Rakhine and Laquan McDonald, oh the Chicago Police Department mm-hmm. is going to, and so for then it was it became clear right. um, seeing that, you know, within the first few weeks there was Palestinian presence in Ferguson, right, being right, some of the, right, the greatest right. solidarity yeah. supporters. And so for me, that is then when I yeah. learned and became more clear in my stance or how I position yeah. myself to it. Uh, so that's like personally, but yeah. I, n- I know from your perspective, globally in this triangle, on the other side of the oppression, how does the resistance differ yeah. and no, it's important.
2: It's important. That 2014 moment that you're talking about, I mean, in Ferguson, it's such an important moment for deepening and reviving the, the transnational connections, especially between the Black Freedom Movement in the U.S. and the Palestinian Liberation Movement. Because, as you said, right, there, it became quickly clear that, that these tear gas canisters were coming from Israel. The Palestinians were tweeting. "How Black Lives Matter. Black <laughs> Lives Matter. And, you know, look, if they hit you with the tear gas, do this and this, right? right? right, like, right. We, that, that's we, where We've the seen this A stuff before. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then, you know, solidarity right back because at the time of the Fergus Uprising, Israel had been bombing the Gaza Strip for 40 days or something like this, killing you know, more than 2,000 people. And so there was some instantaneous, on the part of the resistance, a sense that, like, there's something similar happening here, right? There's some, a similar kind of oppression taking place and at the same time is linked because they're sharing the training, they're sharing the equipment, they're sharing the strategies. And so it became a moment that has led to some really deep connections you know in the last several years there have been several different delegations of of you know black folks and native american folks and and people involved in immigration rights work here in the u.s that have gone to palestine sat down with folks and connected with them and learned their history and learned their stories and and learned about how they're resisting and struggling and vice versa there's even been palestinian delegation coming here Similarly, just a couple of weeks ago, the Palestinian youth movement took a delegation of, I think, 20 people, Palestinians from the U.S. and Europe and Lebanon and also from, I believe, from within the occupied territories. They they took a delegation to South Africa Mm -hmm. to sit down and and connect with movements there to learn about that history, but also to learn about what's going on today and what are the struggles look like there. These transnational circulations of struggles, I think, is really key to resisting. You know, and to to building
1: movements that can support one another and push back against these regimes, yeah. hmm. and it you know there's the delegations on an airplane to another place, and then there's mm-hmm. also just the informal ways that that happens Always. online. That That's you know right. that that is in some ways not that those conversations, like yeah. you said, you know, in the 50s and 60s, people are meeting and having those conversations, but right. the accessibility of that that is unique to now. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Acknowledging that the struggles are different, that, you know, it's not the same history, it's not the same situation, but but they're linked and they're connected.
0: What, and, what are some of those differences that you see are important?
2: I mean, you know, there's there's the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one, right? <laughs> the,
0: the, We're talking about triangles. The, the <laughs> deep
2: anti-blackness that st- shapes white supremacy and the way it operates in the United States, you know, mm. is it, different, right? Just the timeline of it. The timeline is different. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's also deep connections between Palestinians and Native American movements who see similarities there mm-hmm. in terms of the you know the colonial process mm-hmm. of displacement and dispossession. So yeah, obviously, right? There's yeah. there's a lot a lot of importance in recognizing you know how struggles are are, are context specific mm-hmm. and they're not all the same, but they're linked and the possibility for building global and transnational connections.
0: I, you know, has a real basis. So, what what drove your your passion yeah. to to be focused and to spend mm. the amount of time it it took to mm-hmm. to be where you are now in
1: relationship to all of this knowledge production, as you right, call it? Right, right. I have to go way back. Let's do
0: it. <laughs> Let's take it back.
1: <laughs> it can't be way like in the grand yeah. scheme of things. It's not way back. It depends. Actually, I don't know how back, far back you go. Sixteen,
0: fourteen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Zach is in my DM. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, back back to.
2: Around 1990, okay, uh, I was in high school at the time. Where in, in Texas? Okay, A little small town outside of Austin, Texas.
1: Uh, Is that where you grew up, or you were
2: just in high school? I or? was born. I was born in Kankakee. Mm-hmm. Oh. Ah, uh, grew up there till I was about ten, and then moved to the down key. to uh, <laughs> the down, key. down to Round Rock, Texas. <laughs> okay,
1: uh, home of the Round Rock Express, I believe. There you go. That's it's right. Minor league baseball. Minor league baseball team. <sighs> league baseball team. Just, I'm good with it. You're ready for it. Uh, <laughs> I believe Uh, their colors are blue and white. Anyway, let's proceed. They got a nice stadium, too. If you're Mm. down there, check out a game. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This episode is sponsored by the (laughs) American Express. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I
2: was a young, middle-class white boy living in a small town, pretty much unaware of anything outside of my own existence. And, and, uh, you know, one night watching... 60 minutes i believe it was with my parents there was a a, a section on palestine it was during the palestinian the first intifada Mm -hmm. the the palestinian uprising of the late 1980s when kids with stones were taking on tanks and soldiers with jeeps and guns and just watching these kids my own age right 16 year old kids out in the streets battling tanks it was just so far outside Mm of (laughs) my world that it just kind of threw me, you know, and it started to open up questions about all kinds of stuff,
0: right? Mm-hmm. I started what, learning more about What it. answers were available to you at that point? I, I hit the library,
2: honestly. Uh, I hit the library at the high school. I went to the library at the University of Texas and started reading everything I could. I, I ended up writing a paper about the history of, of the Palestinian Israeli conflict at that time and, and started to just try to make sense of what it was mm-hmm. about, you know?
0: Was that intellectual fervor already there or did this provoke it? No, nah, this Th- was, was a real
2: it? spark, you know, for, and it was always, there's a, a political and moral. And an intellectual piece mm-hmm. that are yeah. tied together from yeah. the start, right? Like something ain't right here. But how do we even understand it? Yeah. And so you know, let me learn about it, what I can about it, and and that kickstarted this this interest. A couple years later, I found myself at the University of Texas doing an undergraduate degree in Middle East Studies. Like I was kind of hooked, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And And uh, it was a, a very vibrant student activism on campus in the 90s in, in the University of Texas. So I was deeply involved with the Palestine Solidarity Committee, but there were also African liberation movements involved uh, and some of my closest friends and, and were, were involved with the, the Zapatista liberation movement, yeah. right, which, which really kicked off in 1994. It was Palestine that became my source of education on national liberation and the Zapatistas mm. who, who taught me about Neoliberalism hmm. and global capitalism. Yeah. You know, and those are the interests that came together um, as I moved forward. So by the time that I graduated from college, I went and lived in Gaza for a year. In what context? I was working for an incredible organization called the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. They were doing extremely important work providing support and therapy for people who were dealing with post-traumatic stress. I mean, that was the, the framework that they yeah. used to talk about what was going on, right? I mean, adults who were beaten and, and humiliated, been in prison. Well it started off with people who were former political prisoners who were, you know, needing therapy to deal with the torture and everything that they had faced in, in these Israeli prisons. So the the program began by the one psychiatrist who existed It was in Gaza at the time, Iyad Saraj, started providing therapy to ex-political prisoners but also training them to provide therapy to each other Hmm. and it spread from there so they started a women's program for women who face domestic violence you know a children's program for kids who are seeing violence around them and and facing it from the soldiers or otherwise the work that they do was important I thought the work that I was doing there writing reports and translating stuff um, was less important you know (laughs) I felt like there would be more I could do if I came back and got a graduate degree and you know Gain some tools for, for deepening an analysis and being able to write and talk about what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I ended up at the University of Michigan where I did my PhD. And a couple of years later, the, the, Palestinian, the second Palestinian Intifada father kicked off in 2000. And for the next six years, from basically 2000 to 2006, I spent most of that time in Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, and South Africa. You uh, the
0: South Africa peace.
2: Yeah, the South out. Africa peace came out of that moment. Okay. So I was in, in 2001, the World Conference Against Racism took place in Durban, South Africa. It was a big United Nations conference. Thousands of delegates from all over the world were there. And the two real contentious issues were reparations for slavery and Israeli apartheid. It was really like the, the globalization of that framework of Israeli apartheid came out of, of that moment. People have been talking about it for a long time, but it really became widely known and popularized at that during this conference when when south african activists were talking about you know israel as an apartheid state and the comparisons and links between what was Hmm. going on in both places were really being made quite strongly it was a powerful moment for palestinians i was in the refugee camp in bethlehem uh watching these scenes on tv of tens of thousands of people marching through the streets of durban south africa Hmm. you know calling for the liberation of palestine Mm. And it really meant a lot to people, you know. For the next year, I was I was mostly in Syria and Lebanon in the camps there. M- initially, thinking about a dissertation project on Palestinian refugees in the in the camps. Um, but the conversations kept coming back to South Africa. Yeah, they kept coming back to apartheid.
1: I want to just interject. Yeah. So before we said you were there for a year and then back and then back between all these places. Mm-hmm. I just want to place this in your body a little bit. Yeah. How did? you make sense of your, like, physical space being in all these places at that time? Because, you know, so much of what we're talking about is head work and scholarship. Yeah, right. But you're also living and in relationship yeah. and you sleep in a place and wake up and eat. How did you understand your body in relationship to that mm. place?
0: And also, like, carrying mm-hmm. all of the, like, mm-hmm. American whiteness that just comes with... With the body. Yeah. <laughs> with it. yeah.
2: It was heavy. And, you know, I think that the way that I worked through some of that it was different in different places yeah. but uh, but I always was about building real relationships with people who were in struggle and doing what I could to support you know their work and just being present being there you yeah. know so when I was in South Africa I was I was in South Africa you know what I mean and very much part of daily life and of, of what was going on
1: what do you um, what, what do you telescopes. mean by when you were in South Africa you were in South Africa
2: I, I mean that I feel it even today. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of places. And when I'm in Palestine, I'm deeply engaged with the people on an everyday basis and right. part of communities and, and involved with the struggles that are happening. And the same in South Africa and the same here in Chicago. And I find it hard for me to maintain those deep relationships when I'm not there. Mm. Yeah, This is one of the things that's hardest for me is that I, I do feel like my relationships with people in Palestine are suffering now, you know, mm. and it, and it's same with people in South Africa, because I'm yeah. so focused on, like, what's happening here in Chicago, right? Mm. And so, while I've been able to do this kind of transnational work, there's also there's, yeah, there's, there's those limitations that's to, needed. Yeah, you know? it, it yeah. really is needed.
0: On a less global level, like, to shrink that scale, mm. I definitely hear that of, like, relationships I had in Ferguson, relationships I had, like, in North Lawndale on the west side, uh, and now, you know, having a space more rooted south, even though that's four yeah. hours or 40 yeah, yeah. minutes with, through traffic, right? Like, I, I can imagine that on exponentialized to a global scale. It's, it's hard to all those emails or WhatsApp or however you would correspond. or whatever yeah. Not it to is, mention right.
1: you're just building also your life. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you know that, right, exactly. With a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah.
0: Um, a child. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And so I was there. You know, I was very much there in those camps in Lebanon and Syria and having conversations. People kept saying, you know, South Africa, South Africa, like, see if you can get to South Africa. I think that would be like the most important kind of in the next stage of the struggle. I was able to do that. You know, I was really lucky that in 2002, I was able to go to South Africa for the first time with my partner. The initial connections I had were from Palestinians who'd been to South Africa the year before at the World Conference Against Racism. They said, you know, connect with these folks and these folks. People involved in Palestine solidarity work in South Africa, people involved in the new social movements in South Africa. And so when I got there, I quickly became introduced to really amazing activists involved with the Palestine solidarity movement as well as local social movements in South Africa that were campaigning and building movements against the neoliberal policies of the ANC government right fighting against water privatization electricity privatization fighting for access to housing and medicine and land right and education most of the existing work and even the 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 language of Israeli apartheid that was coming out at that time was based on a comparison of Palestine and Israel today and South Africa before 1994. Hmm. Buried in there to some degree is an acceptance of the, the myth of the new South Africa, right. this miracle of the transformation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of 1994. Right? If you can get rid of the racist state, everything's cool. Yeah. And it became very
0: kindred to the civil rights act.
2: Very, 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 very much like the civil rights movement. Right, And it became instantaneously clear from the organizations and the communities that i was becoming involved with in south africa that that wasn't the case that the struggles continued and that formal legal apartheid was over but things hadn't necessarily changed a whole lot right (laughs) once you
1: once you get to land then it's like oh no sorry
2: land wealth yeah right it wasn't being redistributed it wasn't being addressed and uh, struggles were continuing. So
1: like, no, no, can you just look at our apology for a little longer? <laughs> just focus on the apology. Right. right. We really worked hard on the apology.
2: <laughs> and that's all, that's all it was gonna be. Right? Yeah. And so that's where the kernel of the idea came is that, you know, instead of comparison of Palestine and Israel now to South Africa before nineteen ninety four, you know, under official apartheid then, to look at the the simultaneous changes that were taking place in both countries from the early nineteen nineties until today. Mm. And to see the ways in which neoliberalism was so tied in to the political transformations, that, and was having real impacts in both cases, that while it's important to say that yeah, Israel is an apartheid state, and it and it looks very much like apartheid used to look in South Africa, it also in a lot of ways looks like apartheid still looks in South Africa, <laughs> right? Right? And in Chicago, yeah. And so that's kind of where that. That transition took place is when I got to South Africa and started building those relationships. It was like, no, this needs to go in a different direction.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I want to go big as we are, and then we'll go home. Getting close, to, <laughs> getting close yeah. to to winding down. From my understanding of your research, it's not just about the despair, right? Or mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or racism in mm-hmm. the vague sense. It, it really is rooted in state authoritative violence, Yeah. right? So, you know, for me, that focus is policing. As I go around and try to talk about the idea of we need to abolish yeah. this thing, and if we could, tomorrow, erase them all and deal with those problems <laughs> before, you know, mm, being, you know, mm, incremental mm. or continuing to allow it uh, or consent to, to this. Yeah. And I try to and would like to be more crisp in it and saying we also need to understand that particularly in the US context our military is global policing and Definitely. that needs to be abolished Definitely. as well and us as americans particularly i would say the strength of folks in the you know US black liberation struggle is for folks with american privilege to say okay. abolish the military globally. So yeah, I try to have that conversation yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. you know, I know to people who are not invested into this type of thinking, it feels idealistic or it feels mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know, a given. Uh is and there
1: people just don't know the scope of us intervention right. abroad. That's, right. That's yeah. like yeah. at a base level there is an ignorance of 120 bases and right right right, right. right. 35 yeah. spots yeah. of intervention so, and
0: all that. So to, to 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 be yeah. concise in making the parallel between policing and global militarism, is there a way that we can be more crisp in how we resist them both or how we call for their abolition? Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, the the thing is
2: that policing and war increasingly take place through these combinations of of state and private security forces, right? Yeah. The first US invasion of Iraq in 1991 out of about 100 soldiers were from private contractors. Mm -hmm. By the time 2003 invasion took place, it was like one in four. Mm -hmm. So there's been a massive expansion of private military companies, private intelligence companies, Mm -hmm. right? Snowden worked for a private company that contracted for the CIA Mm -hmm. in South Africa. The rapid expansion of private security companies has been such a, a transformative phenomenon that, that is forcing us to rethink like what is policing you know right and and also a bit of a warning too right because in south africa the rise of the private security is informed by the fact that white elites don't trust the new south african police they're, huh. they're black they're not going to protect us they're not gonna you know they're the, either either they don't care about us or they're corrupt and and yeah. don't know what they're doing and all of Or they're not stuff, corrupt right? in the white way that we. Yeah, used. Yeah, yeah, is that
1: is that is that distrust rooted in experiential or is that a general racialized Combination anxiety? Combination of the two, yeah. probably.
2: But the 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 racialized anxiety is is so present, right? Yeah. It's so powerful. And so it's not that the the South African police haven't been eliminated. They haven't been abolished. They're there. But when you have this concentration of wealth in the hands of a small group that is concerned about their security, they're going to find other ways if they don't trust the police to do the job. So if we talk about abolishing the police in the United States, we have to also recognize that private security... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It becomes the go-to, right? right? And it's going to rapidly expand at the same time. There's going to be yeah. right, organized violence and to protect and secure the interests of the, the powerful.
1: With even fewer access for accountability. Okay. <laughs> like as little as it feels like now, once it's just a company, it's like call the 1-800 number. And
2: you see that the global level as well with right. the military contractors, right? And so to me, when we talk about abolition, it's important to have the global and the local, but also the private and the state security mm-hmm. forces mm-hmm. in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think that if we're talking about abolishing the police, like, yeah, let's do it. To make that work, right, we also have to abolish capitalism. We got to abolish white supremacy. Let's, let's we got, you know, like we got yeah. a, a lot to abolish, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and let's do it.
0: As I'm looking more into housing, land is at the the center of mm. like the capital – yeah. consciousness yeah, yeah. what is the equivalent of like erasing a database or, <laughs> or <laughs> reducing funding to this right. thing that is is so ingrained right. and so inherited on what we think is right or how the world works of i have my fence i have my plot of land i can purchase and sell you know at my discretion yeah. and have full power over over land even if it's not historically mine yeah what the fuck how do we <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: how do abolishing we mortgages yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, there's a question, right? I think that that's what the current most important struggles in South Africa right now are about
1: that. Mm -hmm. About
2: like, we have to redistribute this land, right? The the, the constitution that was enacted in 1996 said, you know, we're going to protect the current distribution of private property, right? Right. Even though it was acquired through violent dispossession Mm -hmm. and colonialism for 300 years. Now it's in their hands. It stays in their hands. The government created what they called a a land redistribution program called the Willing Seller, Willing Buyer Program. Mm -hmm. It was just like a market-based program that if you could find a white person who was willing to sell their land and a black person who was interested in buying it and had enough capital to make that possible, the state would facilitate the purchase. Throw in a little money to subsidize it, right? Mm -hmm. And
0: and the the, the quote-unquote owner is setting the price?
2: Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Right. That program has led to the redistribution of something like 7% of the land in South Africa over the mm. last 25 years. It's completely failed, and people are, are hungry and tired and demanding. And I'm yeah. imagining it's going to, to, a, to a black
0: elite as well. That's it.
2: Yeah, right. right. it's going to a black elite. So,
1: so, so. in the last couple of years, yeah. with the new uh, right. government coming in, I know even in our limited uh, news right. coverage in the United States, those stories still got in about. A new leader calling for the redistribution of land and the repatriation, and then the reactive (laughs) white diasporic work of like protecting these you know poor white farmers, not poor money wise, but like under threat. Right? How's that going there? (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's (laughs) what's the update? That's the
2: (laughs) you know there's there's a, a constitutional amendment being considered right now that would make it clear. It, it, it's not actually changing anything. It, it's making it clear that the state has the right to appropriate land without compensation. Hmm. They, they, they're saying that like that's always been the case, but they've never carried it out, followed through with that threat. But now it's being written up. Hmm. I expect that that constitutional amendment will go through. Whether you know that leads to real property transfers uh, is is hard to imagine. I mean, there yeah. is so much pushback and so much threats of violence mm-hmm. um, on the part of you know the the white landowning elite
1: and just um, all the places including here where like i said like that <laughs> white diasporic like yeah, precedent yeah, setting yeah. of that of like well if they can do it here they could do it here and so we need right. to you know right. quick do a redirect right. something that's like an example of the power of that of that triangle that solidarity yeah, that you talked about yeah. is like then People have to pay attention because they have to face the fact that everyone knows these things are interconnected, mm-hmm. or that people are starting to work yeah, that's right. in that collective that's
0: way. Right. So I'm kind of just want advice or almost feedback uh, or an edit as I talk about abolition and like taking it away from like a campaign or a specific policy and bringing it back to like some of the central philosophy right. in some of my work. The thing that I've grown to challenge more and more. Is safety and security, and you use the word security a lot, is mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. foundational prompt behind all of this work and all of this investment into violence. I believe that that is a fallacy for a collective sure. political body, right? Like the definition of safety and security is the absence of risk, and so usually how I see that is that you know the Chicago Police Department is not Chicago Police Department headquarters; it's the Public Safety headquarters, right? Like the investment into all this militarism is well, not. It's not militarism. It's national security or even the idea of property, right? Like the fence. I need to secure my domain. What it has meant to me is we're going to redistribute that risk. Right. So we're going to make a a quote unquote safe and secure place here Mm -hmm. and put a gate around Mm -hmm. it. And your neighborhood is is messed up. We're going to make these private safe schools and redistribute the risk to those who have less privilege and power and so trying to challenge that notion of we are never safe or never secure is what i try to get people to wrestle with and then how do we redistribute that risk in an equitable way what does some of your study you know there's no i don't have the specifics to kind of go further
2: i mean i think that yeah absolutely security every time it gets talked about is security for a few for mm-hmm. some right mm-hmm. at the exclusion of others it's, it's not being talked about in any kind of a, a universal way and and i really appreciate the way that you talk about the the, re- the distribution of that risk right mm-hmm. the distribution of security and the distribution mm-hmm. of of violence
0: mm-hmm. um, we're going to ensure our investment absolutely and, and we'll right. take your house yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah 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 for me one of the things that that i found to be really useful is the framework that is put forward so strongly in the uh, platform of the movement for black lives which is about you know invest and divest mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. what are we investing in and what are we going to take that money away from and I think that that's where the possibility really lies yeah,
1: it gets it know? out of the existential and into the tangible and people yeah, can right. understand numbers and respond to numbers in a mm. different way that's not an existential question yeah yeah, yeah that makes right. me feel better because you know <laughs> <laughs> the <words laughs> yeah, work here that, that, yeah that's yeah
0: because life is inherently risky right, right. like you can die right. in your sleep and so this kind of like psychosis that we have and I think it has been at the the foundation of the white supremacist project is like we can't deal with Mm. this existential crisis Mm -hmm. of our like mortality and our vulnerability. Right. And so we're going to dominate higher higher way, you know.
1: And And so the, the piece that you didn't mention that we've talked about before, Dave, is that- the alternative to that model is a, an idea of protection. Right. right so right, it's right, not right. saying that we will eliminate the risk. Right. It's saying that we will acknowledge that there is risk and we'll figure out how to protect ourselves in whatever way we define them. Yeah. That could be individual. That could be communal.
0: I can lock yeah. my door. Somebody can still kick it in, yeah. but that's better than you know, just having your door open. And
1: it doesn't mean that you have to go lock up the person who might kick down your door.
0: Right. right. Or try to use that door for profit based off. Speculation.
1: You don't charge people to come inside the door. <laughs> All right, now we're... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the metaphor has been extended. Damon's yeah. felt better. I'm spinning. Let's check out.
0: Yeah, let's check out. A moment, a phrase, an idea, a, a word, a strand that is either sitting with you of like something we did cover or something that feels kind of like loose or mm, you want to mm. like encapsulate in terms of, of this, this time we've had together. Where we started.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the database. Yeah. The, the policing in Chicago research group. You know, uh, I felt. I would have liked to have more time to work through some of those issues and some of the kind of, you know, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But I really, really appreciate this conversation oh, and how broad it's been and how big it's been. and what yeah. you got? Ancient history.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but important history. Mm. One thing I'm thinking about is your experience of being in those places in the Middle East and people telling you, hey, if you want to understand better, mm. go there. Mm-hmm. And your willingness to follow that and, and have that be the entry point So, you know, we just had Adrienne Marie Brown on and talking about emergence. And like, you didn't have your hypothesis and you set out to prove it. You went and you talked and you tried to make sense of it. And then you followed that where that went. So that feels like an approach to scholarship and to Mm. just trying to, outside of the academy, just trying to understand. That feels really useful. So it's cool to see someone who's done that for you know, decades now as an example of that. So thanks for Appreciate thanks that. for sharing how those pieces connect. That's useful for me.
0: Yeah. A couple of things. One on a on a lighter scale, something I was gonna say uh while we were talking about the database and surveillance. Surveillance is kind of accepted as inevitable, mm-hmm. but just how privileged the like critique or resistance of it. Like we we worry about like oh, I think I'm going to take my thumbprint from my iPhone or they're like looking on my Facebook as opposed to like the real consequence of the incarceration, deportation and and murder that happens as a result of surveillance. Uh, But more importantly, and I think holistically, kind of the conversation we were having before you got here was around why these three spaces, because... Oppression and violence and domination is global and transhistorical, right it's been happening as long as human memory mm-hmm. allows us to go back. What I gather from your piece is what connects them is the resistance. They may be the three most significant or extreme forms of global violence. I think that argument is fair, and we can lean towards it, uh, but regardless, it's about the humanity mm-hmm. that that is in response or that is sustained regardless of the, the, the domination. So just, just like being reminded or refreshed about the global hum, human project of like trying to make a better existence and how through following the sacrifices of that project, we find these connections that we need to like amplify mm. and center. Yeah, that's what
2: sustains me. <laughs> For sure.
1: Can you elaborate? <laughs> I, I, I just, we you had know, it just, out, but I want to make, <laughs> I just, I'm yeah, curious. that sounds good. When yeah, you yeah, say yeah. that sustains you, what do you mean?
2: I mean, you know, a lot of the work is heavy. But the resistance is strong, and it's beautiful, and, and, and you know, I've been uh, part of some really incredible formations, and uh, it sustains me, you know, it keeps me going.
1: Yeah. Where can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Right
2: on. Check me out on the website of the University of Illinois Chicago, Department of Sociology or African American Studies. You'll find me there. you find my book, Neoliberal Apartheid, University of Chicago Press, 2017.
1: Cool. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm Damon underscore AF. We're Ergo Radio everywhere. And uh, we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Damon, you recognize those drums? I think I do. You know what song they're from?
0: Is this a Belle Biv DeVoe moment?
1: It's a Belle Biv DeVoe moment. That is from the song Poison. (laughs) I really thought that song was America's favorite poison. No, no, no. Turns out it's beer.
0: <laughs> Speaking of beer, this episode is brought to you by Lagunitas Brewing Company, Chicago Tap Room and Beer Sanctuary.
1: Come for fresh beer, live music, and killer food, Wednesdays through Sundays, killer food, <laughs> 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Bring your group and hop on a brewery tour seven days a week, or swing by the Lagunitas Tap Room in Pilsen.
0: Does sanctuary like, imply meditation and offerings to the Lord?
1: not my lord (laughs) you can also find some Lagunitas near you at lagunitas.com life is uncertain don't sip